Hi, I'm Eric Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. About 10 years ago, I got obsessed with this idea that design could be a form of inquiry. Graphic design, the field I was trained in, didn't just need to be in service of some design problem that a client brought to me. Design wasn't just problem solving. It wasn't only a commercial enterprise. Design could also be a process of questions, of discovering new insights, a driver of personal expression, an activity driven by play, improvisation, experimentation, and research. This insight completely changed how I thought about the possibilities of design and the possibilities of my own work. In many ways, this show is rooted in this idea of design as a form of inquiry. When I think of practitioners who embody this idea today, I think of Jeremiah Chu. From the beginning of his career, Jeremiah focused on making space for personal creative work alongside the client work he was doing. And I think you can see how that intentionality shapes everything he does. Jeremiah's work spans design, art, music, teaching, and community organizing. His studio, Some All None, operates at the intersection of design, music, and technology, and is focused on activating graphic design beyond a traditional commercial practice, working equally to reimagine its role in a capital society and to implement it as a tool for community organization and experimental expression. He's also an assistant professor at Otis College of Art and Design and a prolific musician and DJ. I was interested in having Jeremiah on the show to talk about how all these activities fit together. In this really wide-ranging conversation, we talk about the importance of maintaining space for personal work, how music and performing influences his design practice, and why transparency is the key that drives his teaching. This was an inspiring conversation with so many great insights. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Scratching the Surface is made possible because of listeners like you who help support the show each month on Patreon. Supporters get bonus interviews, a monthly newsletter, and all sorts of other content. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast to sign up and get immediate access to all of that bonus material. Thanks as always for listening. And here's my conversation with Jeremiah Chu. the last 11 years or so I saw have been sort of writing a word that guides you for the year. And so in 2022, the word was time. In 2019, it was shift. 2015 was focus. And you just posted on Instagram a couple couple weeks ago that your 2023 word is the year of stretch. Yes. Can you tell me, tell me a little bit about that practice and then tell me what stretch means for you and how you're kind of hoping that will guide you this year? Sure. I mean, I think that for me, um, you know, it, it wasn't something that, that followed the, I guess, like the structure of like a New Year's type resolution <laughs> or anything, right. though, of course, it does sort of appear around that space or that time. But I think it has a lot to do with just the the nature of, um, you know, in the fall, things sort of start to settle or shift in, in their own ways. And um, it kind of came to me as an idea of saying like, can I just like, I, I really want to make a change in the coming year or like push towards something. But what that something was, I wasn't entirely um, clear on. And so 
what happened in that first year was just more or less just like, what happens if I try this out um, and see what happens, you know? And I, I can't remember exactly what the first one is. It, it's in my you know desk right over here somewhere. <laughs> but, but what happened is it's like, as an example, you know, I had the year of uh, collaboration mm-hmm. and it really came out of this idea that I was like, well, next year, what I would love to do is uh, find more opportunities for collaboration. And so, and in having that be the word, what what happened is that there were a lot of moments throughout the year that people would approach me with um, an idea or a project or a, an opportunity, and a lot of times with things that I would previously be like, I'm not sure if I would do this or I'm not sure if mm-hmm. I want to. And in that particular year, I was like, well, <laughs> right. this is my word, so... Let's go for it and see what happens. And what that ended up teaching me is that I have to be more open to all of these ideas, to to all of these experiences, and really just the um, the sense of being a little bit uncomfortable is actually quite exciting mm-hmm. because it's not going to change um, me. I'm still going to stand my moral ground and uh, maintain my ethics and integrity. Um, but I will experience something that I may not have otherwise uh, allowed myself to experience. And so that's why the practice has continued. I love that. Tell me about this word stretch. Why is stretch, like what is, how does that sort of shape yeah. what you want for for this year? You know, so as, as this process has continued over the years, I really, uh, I let a word find me <laughs> now, mm-hmm. you know, as, as uh, you know, um, as, as maybe woo is that sounds um i get it i know what you mean yeah but you know i think it was really it's something that's like maybe that what it actually is is i'm following an intuition uh, or a subconscious that um lets certain things kind of float to the surface and then they find me and then i'm like okay uh if something starts to stick over the you know course of the year that becomes the word for the next year and intentionally they are words that are uh that can be uh, interpreted many different ways. Right. I noticed so. that. <clears throat> so, you know, stretch is something that, um, I guess with all of them, they, they really, uh, surprise me, you know, throughout the year, because you have something like, um, voice, for example, for some time. And I was like, I think I'm going to use this to feel more confident and, developing my voice, et cetera. And what it ended up happening was, yes, that did happen in some ways. And I was doing a little bit more writing and, um, and focusing on developing a publishing practice, but also I ended up working on a lot of sound pieces that just were about the voice, you know, Mm. and it was kind of way more literal than I had anticipated. And that sort of has continued on its own life. So, um, Intentionally, it's something where I'm like, I may have some notion of where it may guide me, but really, it's always going to surprise me and embracing, uh, you know, what that that change can be. The reason I asked, I wanted to start with that and ask you about that is because I feel like it is a nice way to sort of talk about all of your work. Actually, there is this sort of self-reflexivity in your work. There is this sort of taking into account 
the type of work you want to do, the type of person that you are, and then how that manifests itself, whether that is design or teaching or, or music. And, uh, when you started your, when you co-founded your studio plural back in, in the late, uh, 2000s, right. you had this sort of like mission or mandate or goal that 50% of it would be self-initiated work versus sort of client work. And I was struck by that so early in your career, this sort of desire to make space for yourself, for work to find you. Where did that come from? Or, or what was the goal there? Or what were you sort of hoping to do with that 50-50 split? Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, 50-50 is like a little bit of an arbitrary number. It's just... It, <laughs> It was just that like we wanted to make sure that we maintain um, a practice that is personal, that is research-based, right. that is investigative um, and exploratory, and that those things may inform how we think about um, running a, you know, quote-unquote traditional uh, studio practice or, you know, design firm or whatever that ends up being. Um, so much of my background prior to going to dis, you know graphic design school the program that i was in was art and design and so it really overlapped mm. between um an art practice and a design practice and you were kind of learning me the mechanics or the the theory of both right. simultaneously and i think when i uh you know we were leaving grad school and it was myself and renata Gras and chris kalis and we um, decided, you know, why don't we use this, spend the last moments of our time here to see what we can do right immediately after. Um, mm. The studio was really started because at that time, uh, my thinking was like, well, this is pretty much the lowest overhead I'm ever going to have, <laughs> right? I'm already right. used to living like a student um, or, you know, I was living as a student. And so then my responsibilities, my bills, my all of this sort yep. of stuff, I was like, these are kind of, they're only going to increase from here on out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds so familiar. So, yep, um, I, I know that feeling. So let's give it a go. You know, I have a little bit of like, a, um, I can make it through a couple months if we just push and see what happens. And and that's kind of what it, what it really grew out of. But, you know, in my own approach or my sort of uh, practice is that I don't turn any of these things off and I don't uh, silo them. You know, the work... Mm -hmm and ideas in design and in art and in music sort of all in interweave uh, with each other. And they feel to me like a singular, uh, singular practice. And it's been a lot, uh, you know, basically a lifelong <laughs> struggle to define what that is um, or to have other people understand how that might exist. Can you talk more about this idea of seeing them all as one, as not separating right. them? Was that a process? Did it take time for you to be able to say, this is music, this is, this is design, but it's all similar. It's all one thing in some way. I think one of the, one of the themes of this show and one of the sort of constant struggles in my work is that articulation of different, you know, different sort of modes of working. You talk a lot about this idea of hybridity, which I right. really much relate to. How do you come to arrive at seeing these as all the same? Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it took time for me to, um, one, feel confident in it, and yeah. two, to kind of really understand what my, uh, my individual perspective or voice was in that. But in terms of the the you know, process or the practice itself, um, 
as an example, when I'm working in any of these spaces, they all share the same vocabulary, you know? So if you're making a work of music, you're composing something. And if you're making a, you know, work of design, you're composing something. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, composition, balance, uh, tension, story, dynamics, rhythm, rhythm, all of these things are things that we're taught in, in both, um, you know, in any one of these practices, whether it's art, whether it's music or sound, whether it's design, whether it's any sort of creative endeavor, um, you're always working with the same vocabulary. And so to me, that was the most obvious moment of, of saying, you know, when I was shifting between one or the other projects, oftentimes they would be a little bit more separated, but I would end up using the same techniques or strategies. And in some ways, like not having, um, gone to music school and having that sort of, um, uh, more of a rigid structure and how I was approaching that, it allowed me to take, be a little bit more free with that. And then, um, in doing design for, for clients, as an example, I would say like, why can't I use this, uh, strategy here? You know, why can't I bring some of these ideas here? And it really did allow me to open it up. Um, understanding that, that, that part of the way to achieve these, um, things with client work is to be able to explain these ideas as well. I mean, what's interesting is that you, you've worked mostly independently, but you had this sort of short period in the middle of your career. You were a art director at Compass and then you worked at, at Infoco, both uh, Adam and Shannon have been on the show before. Um, Did that sort of hybridity or intersection, can you talk about that in the context when you're working for somebody else and how that shifted those dynamics a little bit? Yeah. You know, I think that like, um, I've thought about this a lot because it's like, you know, when we first started building a studio, of course, like a lot of the studio goals in the beginning are to like grow a business and to learn how to do business in the first mm-hmm. place, but also to grow sort of like a, 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 you know, a visual appearance so that people recognize you and see you and you kind of exist in the, um, circuit, you know, of, of uh, <laughs> right. you know, people practicing design in the world. And when I started to look more and more at who, uh, who was doing that, you know, all the different small studios around at the time, I was like, this is wonderful. I'm super inspired by it. But I also felt like I wanted to not only do that. And, and in some ways, like, uh, there was a shift in which I was trying to um, bring more and more of my overlapping, you know, practices together. And so I didn't necessarily um, take a sort of break in the middle and try these other things. I was sort of always, always doing these because at Plural, we oftentimes would be hired um, by different Uh agencies to do, do that kind of work. So, you know, we were working with all these agencies like um, VSA partners and Tribal DDB and, uh, you know, and so we had the experience of going into these spaces and having a team that we would lead and work with. And so I really started to understand and learn, um, you know, the, the different scales of, of how design studios function. And when I made the move, so I moved to uh, Los Angeles in 2014. And at that time, you know, our practice as plural was, was shifting um, in different ways. And, and it felt like a natural moment where, um, I wanted to focus a little bit more on developing, um, this practice and, and Renata, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, we were the two partners at Plural. We just, you know, basically there was sort of a natural, um, right. You know, difference of uh, direction. And, and I think that that stuff is okay. It wasn't the easiest thing, but it was um, also, I think something that was really ultimately really necessary, but it really opened me up. Um, and at that time, the intention was just to say like, well, I'm going to try everything because I want these experiences. <laughs> right. And right. this is just who I am as a person in terms of like um, really having the desire to put myself into new situations where I might learn something from them or what can I take from them? So, you know, Compass um, approached me and it was like, for me, I was like, there's no way, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's the one part of your, your like yeah. resume that I'm like, wait, what's what happened there? Tell me more. Yeah. Well, the, you know, at the, t- at the time I was like, you know, I'm running this independent practice and it's a small studio. And then here comes this, uh, basically the startup that, uh, you know, bring is bringing technology into the real estate market. Um, similar to like how, well, not not similar, but you know, an, ex- an, an analogous would be Uber bringing right. technology into the you know <laughs> the ride sharing space. So, you know, when on paper it was like real estate and and tech, and I was like, this is not me uh, or anything that I've done at all. But the proposal was to help build um, a West Coast a West Coast design team and. Mm launch different offices and hire a team and develop a basically a design strategy um, that could impact sort of a national audience. And for me, I was like, well, when else am I going to get this opportunity or this challenge to face? And in a lot of ways, what I like is the challenge of saying like, I have to put some things aside and uh I'm not, you know, I don't want my ego to drive this decision, though it was, it was very hard because some people were like, why, why would you do this? And other people were like, you got to do this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But it was a great experience because I learned so much that year. And I I learned also that like, I didn't have to, um, it didn't have to be perfect on paper for me to go in and say like, my approach or mindset should be one of uh, bringing my um, best self there every day and learning what I can learn and seeing what what I can take from this as well. So it felt, uh, you know, like a certainly a different moment in my career, but it just felt like a good opportunity to also work with a ton of designers very quickly and um, and also not kind of navigate that the space of you know how startups or tech uh, companies function. So it was it was great. Did working in that setting and even even your time at, at Infoco, which is like another sort of small studio that, you know, probably is more analogous to what you were sort of doing with Plural, did that change how you did the self-initiated work, sort of having those different types of constraints, being in those different environments? Did that Did that change how you think about like, that balance between self-initiating client and how you see those relating to each other. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what you took from that, that sort of evolved your own practice? Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, what I, um, what you gain is a confidence that that what you're doing is, uh, is okay. And, (laughs) and that, you know, as long as you're, you know, for me, I was like, I just need to keep growing. Um, 
I, I just realized I was like, you know, um, yeah. And thinking about how to run your own studio, you have the opportunity to make the decisions, but also that decision-making is, is extremely hard um, because you have to go fully uh, forward in it. You have to follow your intuition. You have to sort of have that belief that um, it can reflect your values and reflect yourself in a way that you feel good about. So, you know, for sure, having worked at Compass, having worked with Infoco, having done any number of other, um, you know, agency type or freelance type gigs, uh, helped me form my own approach to the studio, but it really also helped me form my, um, a strategy when working with clients, you know, because mm. I think that, for me, so much of it is that these days, um, you know, I'm balancing teaching with running a design studio with, you know, play, uh, doing sound work. But it, it afforded me a little bit of space to say, like, if I'm taking on client work uh, in the beginning, I really want to make sure that not only that um, it's the right project for me, but that I'm also well suited to do the work, you know, so right. I'm pretty um I'm pretty transparent, but also very, I ask a lot of questions before we even start to get into like uh, working on something. So with a, you know, even in developing a proposal for a project, um, I want to make sure like, are you sure you want to work with me too? <laughs> you know, I think it's a, it's a question that I didn't always used to ask. Cause of course, in the beginning, you're kind of like, well, you have, um, you have a budget and I don't have, and I need a budget. <laughs> so right. Right. maybe uh, we should work together because I, I just need to keep the, you know, the, the rent paid or whatever. And, and now it's much more um, stable, you know, as I've been doing this for the better uh, part of two decades and, and kind of understand how to approach this, but also can, can understand, you know, where opportunities exist to, um, to push the conversation forward and to create work that I think is really meaningful and impactful, um, to, to the field. It's a really nice way to talk about your current practice. Some all none. I'm hesitant to call it a studio, even though on the website, you call it a studio. (laughs) Actually on the description on the website is, um, some all none. The studio is focused on activating graphic design beyond a traditional commercial practice, working equally to reimagine its role in a capital society and to implement itself as a tool for community organization, social activism, and experimental expression. That that to me feels like a a really nice articulation of what you were just saying. There is this focus here. There is a there is a sort of mission behind the studio. What does that actually look like in practice? What does it mean for a graphic design studio to reimagine its role in a capital society to implement itself as a tool for community organization, social activism, and experimental expression? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that like, you know, I'm, I'm an experimenter through and through (laughs) It's part (laughs) of it so much so that I'm like, I experiment with my design proposals to clients, you know, (laughs) every, every sort of step of the way I'm like rethinking. Um, But, you know, a lot of that that description i was like is it still feels it could be more and more specific but of course Mm. the idea was to um to say that like 
for a large part of uh, the time that I've been practicing design, I've also been participating in all of these other communities, you know, um, doing sort of art, uh, art practices or projects, um, doing music or sound works and having all of those sort of communities overlap, but also being somebody that intentionally tries to, uh, to connect people um, mm. and, and spaces and places in between, but also to cultivate the kind of uh, community or culture that I, I want to see flourish, you know? And, mm-hmm. and I guess an example of this is that um, <clears throat> for a long time in Chicago, I was working a lot, uh, well, I still do, with um, Ed Marzuski, who runs this, you know, slew of different organizations on Chicago, in Bridgeport in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, most notably, I've been working on this thing called Lumpen Magazine, which then uh, evolved to Lumpen Radio. So it's sort of this FM terrestrial radio broadcast. And, you know, the idea was always to connect communities, but also to give um, some space to... Um, underrepresented ideas. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I remember specifically, and I kind of reference this all the time is like this experience of, um, going to on any given weekend or week, weekday, I'm a weekday goer these days. (laughs) (laughs) I like the weekday shows. Um, (laughs) but you know, going to something like an art opening, I, uh, you know, a, a show, like a music show and then a design, you know, panel or lecture, and who would I see at all three right. of those spaces? Um, and it ended up being, you know, the very few people that I could ever see at all those three. But to me, they were like, they were so connected in being like, this is what informs my practice. This is what informs and in, in what I want to see more people doing. And it was for a long time, it was uh, Sonnenzimmer, the, this group of Nick, uh, Nick Butcher and Nadine uh, Nakanishi in Chicago that I would like, I would see them at all mm-hmm. the things. I was like, you are my people, you know? Um, but, you know, uh, and a handful of other people like that too, but I really loved those, those overlaps. Um, and, and so the practice for me was really like, how do I start to cultivate more and more of this? So, you know, my work developing something like a um, Twitch stream platform for artists and musicians to do something during the pandemic and do like, uh, you know, live streamed concerts and then training all of these artists on how to do that uh, feels like a design project to me because my approach is identical. Right. Right. Um, It's not segmented. How I'm, I'm really interested. You've been, you, you've been teaching at Otis since 2019. Um, and I'm always thinking about these questions through the lens of education also and sort of how you introduce and encourage ideas of hybridity, of multidisciplinarity, of community organizing, um, sort of, you know, all these sort of modes that you're talking about. How do these ideas translate into the classroom or how, what is the relationship between your practice and your students? Right. I, you know, I, um, teaching has been really an amazing experience mm-hmm. for me. I think that I, I, it keeps me on my toes and I'm learning all the time and it feels also one huge part of this practice, um, that, that all comes together. So yeah, education is firmly, you know, one of the, of the parts yeah. of this, uh, practice. And with the students, I, I kind of took this approach in right 
in the beginning, you know, I had been teaching a little bit before, um, but really didn't fully go into a full-time teaching um, practice until recently. And what I decided to do was be uh, as transparent as possible. That was the, mm. the baseline approach, which is like, if you have a question, I will answer it as honestly as I can, you know, yeah. and this really, and do you to, say that? Like, do you say yeah, that to yeah. students on the first day? Absolutely. Yeah, um, I love that. And I kind of remind them because I want them to know, especially because, uh, you know, we're, what we do know is that our students eventually become the people that we hire and we collaborate with and we work with and they, you want them to all exist in, in the world and be mm-hmm. the people that are making that change and pushing um, the ideas forward. And, and so I want to approach it not as, you know, less hierarchical and more as like, you are all here collaborating with me and I'm learning as much from you as you're learning from me. Um, so I'm super transparent with them all the way to the point where I, I show them, you know, my day-to-day conversations and emails and Mm. uh, proposals and everything. I'm just like, look, this is (laughs) really how the conversation happens um, from my perspective so that you can gain some insight into how you might develop your own voice or your own practice in that same situation that you'll, you'll certainly be confronted with at some point. So, um, you know, I think that I, I bring them that transparency, but also I do it so that they can see that um, what I've learned over time is that if you're trying to make a living as an artist, no two artists do it the same way. You know, right, right. it's really a, a huge smattering of different approaches. So you might find that an, another artist is like, I do, uh, you know, set design and then I make these uh, objects and then I do these other events. And this is kind of like my own collection of ways that I make my living. And I want to open that up so that the students see that there isn't just a singular path, because I do think that a lot of what uh, I experienced in design school and just seeing how other design programs function is that there is a little bit of a funneling into certain industry. And while I think that that may be um, completely practical and necessary and helpful and and desirable for a lot of students that uh, there's an equal amount of students that are, are seeking other uh, approaches to make, to forge a practice that aren't as um, apparent or obvious out there. So I really am looking for that opportunity to be like, you can do so many things with this and what I'm teaching you. Um, and, and this is in the syllabus as well, but we kind of break it down to like technique and, uh, and, and culture, you know, so like I can, uh, teach you the, I can teach you the technical skills. Anyone can learn the technical skills, but uh, what I can't teach you is how to um, be yourself, you know, how to find yourself. You have to kind of do that work and I can guide you, but I can't tell you what to be. That's exactly sort of why I was asking that question. And you started to, to hit on this a little bit in that answer, because I, th- I, I like to think that I try to do the same thing and I've somehow cobbled together this <laughs> disparate group of activities that I do that, you know, sort of, you know, make up, up my life. And I see that in, in my students at every institution that I've taught on, so uh, taught in. So this is not, you know, um, a sort of singular idea is this, this desire to work across mediums to, 
bring in things that are outside of design, this tension of like, I can't tell you how many times I've had students say like, hey, I want to do this thing for this project, but I'm worried that it's not design. Right. And I'm like, Absolutely. I don't care. Like there, there's the old, I think it's um, Richard, Richard Hollis, who has this line in an interview that I've sort of borrowed and adapted a little bit where he's like, uh, graphic design is anything made by a graphic designer. Yeah. That's what I kind of always tell always tell my students. Um, but there is this, on the other hand, there is this this funneling, whether it's funneling into specific industries, whether it is this like, um, you know, tracks within a program, you know, here's like the interactive track or the branding track. And there's this sort of desire to, there is, there is um, talk of multidisciplinary, but then, uh, sort of the reality is actually discouraging that in many ways. And I'm, right. I'm wondering if you could sort of talk about that. And, and you started to say that with this sort of move between culture and technique, but how you think about, you know, students who are in your class, who, you know, probably many of them are taking out loans and right. debt to be there and are thinking, I want to do all of these things, but I also want to get a job and support myself. Right. How do I bring these together? How do I sort of think through this? How do you sort of talk with students about that idea? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is, you know, the the first thing that I I make sure to establish um, and and really kind of remind throughout the semester with students is that um, this is a place of respect. You know, we have to come. Mm -hmm. We all have to come to this space with the, the understanding that each of us has different desires. Each of us comes from different backgrounds with different experiences and skill sets and um, that there isn't a better approach for each person that they have to make these choices a little bit on their own. So, right. you know, I, I think that that's a hard, um, oftentimes a hard, a, a hard thing to, explain or show because of course you know for myself uh you know i'll have opinions on certain uh approaches to design but i i have to make sure that i maintain um an unbiased sort of tone uh when talking about that stuff because for everybody some of that stuff might be completely necessary and the best fit for for different people it might not be best for me but i want people to know that it might be perfect for them um, right. and that's, that's a hard, you know, that's a hard line, um, to maintain because you do want to make sure that you're giving enough space for everybody to find their own opportunity. I mean, th this is maybe a nice way to talk about a project you did a couple years ago, uh, outer space that is sort of this course workshop. It was a right. book published by slanted that I think deals with a lot of these issues in, in the intro to that. You're right. From from an educator's perspective, it may seem obvious to teach as we have been taught, but too often education is taught in binaries, right and wrong, or through biases, subjective goodness as a measure of quality. Uh, this book proposes that we reestablish the hierarchical balance between teacher and student. Can you talk a little bit about that project and what you learned from that and how that sort of influences your teaching now? Yeah, this is a good example of me turning a course into an experiment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, I thought so. But, you know, but firmly asking, you know, this was completely conducted on, on online because it mm. was right during the, you know, um, summer of the pandemic. And so, um, you know, I, I sort of developed two uh, courses. This is a month long, basically uh, intensive. And 
on the first day of class, we kind of took a poll and I was like, here's two possible ways we could do this class. Oh, I could, wow. you know, I could teach you the things that you think you came here to sign up for and want to know, and that's totally fine. Or we can do this experiment together, <laughs> um, which I, I will, that. you know, sort of poured in these ideas, but like it may feel at times confusing or frustrating or challenging, but are you up for it? And they, and these are uh, students that were going into college. So they're high school level. Oh, and, wow. and so intentionally I was like, let's see what we can, I want to see, um, you know, what they're capable of. And also just knowing that they all come uh, as young people with a very high level of understanding of the world. I don't want to dismiss the, anything because of their age. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually understand them as completely capable, high functioning uh, humans. And so, you know, it was an experiment um, in the sense that we broke it down into some pieces, but really allowed us to start to ask questions. Um, And I think at that time, that that moment between high school and college is, is, of course, volatile, but also quite interesting because you're kind of learning that you can think for yourself, you know? Right. Um, And it's no longer... I think the hardest shift that I see from uh, people coming from high school to college is that their their primary concern is grade, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's like, let's not worry about grade here. Let's actually try to think through some ideas uh, together and see where what you care about. Um, and I don't know that they're always asked that, you know. I think I had a great high school experience, and in that I did have. Um, a teacher that was asking us similar questions and just trying to really engage us uh, for ourselves. And I don't know that that always happens, but I, I wanted to use this opportunity to say like, could we actually forge something? And then, you know, the book itself kind of came near the end of that because the conversations were so rich um, and the experience was so good and they were, they were fully in, you know, they were just like, this is all I'm doing for these weeks in the summer, I'm all in, let's go. And I was like, we can actually turn this into a book. Do you, you know, like you could have a published thing uh, that your name is on by the end of this course. And they were like, let's do this. (laughs) Um, So it was very cool to try this out. This is not the question that I was going to ask you after that question, but hearing you say that, you know, makes me think of questions of, grades of critique you know i you know i think the critique like the studio critique in design school is so fraught with a type of politics a type of social hierarchy who is confident and not confident how close are you to what the instructor is expecting like even you know no matter how hard i try to kind of have this openness and this sort of individuality there's oh that stuff always emerges how does how does thinking about design this way, how does thinking about design education this way change how you think about critiques, evaluation, relationships between how students talk about the work of their peers? Right. How does that sort of happen in the classroom? I mean, uh, it's, it's uh, as to no surprise, it's something that I've been pushing <laughs> in different yeah. directions. But, you know, what what has been happening lately is that we call it, I, I call it conversation now. So I, at Otis, we, we co-teach. Um, and so the, you know, the two people I am, or usually it's two, two to three people that were co-teaching a course together when they kind uh. of group them up together. And it's really nice because you're able to gain different perspectives 
um, from different people from week to week. But in terms of um, the critique and the role of critique, it is something that there is a section in the syllabus that talks a little bit about the historical precedent of of critique coming out of uh, you know um, a certain kind of Eurocentric mm-hmm. uh, art mm-hmm. school education, and what are we trying to gain from this, and what are we actually trying to do? And so, um, what I've done lately is I developed this thing that I just called the critique or the conversation worksheet, and it it uses an example that I found. Um, in art form when I was reading sort of an article and it just so, so perfectly uh, broke down somebody's artwork and described it. And I use that as an example or a reference point, Uh. which then takes all the different uh, ways that you can analyze a work and breaks those down. So then you also have the vocabulary listed there, um, which you can of course riff or expand upon. But what it does is it just breaks it down into ways of looking and analyzing work. So, you know, it's, it's formal, it's conceptual, it's uh, historical, and how do those things all come together? So, you know, we try to, you know, I'm really trying to remove the, um, the structure of critique uh, is as in like, you know, a small group of people standing around a thing, looking at it, and then who feels the most confident to publicly speak always gets, you know, sort of comes forward. Um, I don't, I don't think that that benefits everybody always. Um, so, you know, we've included writing in it now. So it's like, take a moment to actually analyze the work and write it out. Mm-hmm. And and you can also write it in your own language if English isn't your first, right? And so there's all these different opportunities here um, that, that I'm trying to make sure students can start to, uh, that students don't end up, um, feeling like, oh, I can't do this because it doesn't cater to my, you know, personality or my, uh, you know, it it puts me on the spot, you know, and I I think there's other ways to do that. I am so fascinated by written critiques also. I mean, maybe that's just because I'm a writer, you know, also, and I sort of think that way, but I've done experiments with written critiques. um, And I've had things, I've done things that are sort of loosely adapted from sort of what Elliot Earls does at Cranbrook's, you know, in in a very like, you know, sort of simplified way, but where students sort of present work one week and then students go off for a week and write about one of their classmates work and then come back and we do this like reading together. And they were always so powerful. It was like like the best critique. It was, you know, the things that the students could sort of talk about and wrestle with when they had time to actually look at another work over a course of a week or a couple of days and then write about it. Right. And the, like the class went long and nobody left at the end of class, you know, because we just kept sort of reading these. And so it's it's nice to hear that you sort of have been experimenting I mean, with that. You know, if you think about what it, what you're doing in those spaces, let's, you know, for any of us, let's imagine that we come to a space uh, like you go to an art opening with your friends and then they're like critique this right now. And it's like, part of this is a mode of like, well, are you a good improviser? Right. um, And also um, what is your reaction? You know, like it becomes reactionary in a lot of ways because you're forced to, to uh, articulate your ideas about something on the spot, you know, in the Mm -hmm. moment. And, Mm -hmm. and I think that that, like, of course, writing is going to work because then you have to sit down and think about the thing and then organize your thoughts um, and articulate them. So it it feels like that's a kind of like a no brainer that you would take some time uh, in between looking at a work 
um, so that you can experience it and engage with it and be thoughtful about what you might say about it. I want to completely change the subject as we yes. head towards the end of the conversation <laughs> because you, you've talked about music throughout this, but we haven't actually talked about your the musical side of your work. And so you, you've released solo albums, sort of, I, mm -hmm. I don't have the language for, for music yeah, yeah, like I do, sure. you know, sort of synthy kind of droney ambient kind of music. Uh, how does that, you talked a little bit about sort of how the language is similar between music and design, composition, rhythm. Uh, how does, how does working in that medium where there's no words necessarily, right. the content is so different. How does that sort of overlap or or diverge from everything that we've been talking about today sort of the more visual kind of design work yeah i mean i think that you know sound or, or music for me is just another expression or experiment to to kind of investigate um because the way that it operates is so interesting to me in in the sense that like you know when you make a an album um it lives with people, right? And they may listen to it once and kind of have an experience or some people will sort of repeat, listen to it and it becomes part of their uh, experience of mm -hmm. love the day to day and, and of their lives. And there's this connection between memory and sound that I think we can all understand, which is like, if you hear a song that you used to be obsessed with as a teenager, right? forever, it sort of lives with you and experiences with you. Um, so I think that that ex ex expression is quite interesting, um, not dissimilar from like a, a sound installation that can change the environment quite a lot. So, right. you know, for me, it seemed like a natural uh, extension or connection where, you know, when I'm approaching the development of, of any of these different works, they're kind of always, they all start as ideas, but they may take any form. One might be visual, one might be sound. Um, but I am somebody that enjoys, um, you know, I work with synthesizers and I have for a long time um, because I like the tactile nature of it and also the opportunity to like not be on the computer <laughs> right, right. doing that stuff. Um, but I like engaging my ears as much as I like engaging my eyes. And, and you know, that sensibility is a different one that I think can be really quite emotional and quite human. So. You know, there are things that, um, for me, connect uh, the same way that you might see a work of design that's like, I've never seen anything um, make this connection to my experience the same way. Um, and it can ch sort of change you. I want to make sure this question is not overly reductive, but I'm wondering if you think at all about ideas of authorship differently in design work and, and music. And the reason I ask that is, you know, so often as designers, you know, you might get credited somewhere, maybe at the bottom or it goes on your website, but often when things are out in the world, you know, your name's not right at the top of it, but when right. you're, when you're making an album and you're thinking about these collections of songs are going to go together and my name's going to be on right. it. Does that change your approach at all? Or, 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 you know, how you sort of think about, what makes a Jeremiah Chu album, you know, you know, sure, you know sure. what I mean? I mean, oh yeah, you can, you know, it's like the endless, uh, the endless struggle of being like, do I call my studio a name? Do I have right. a band name? And, and right. they're all the same. And, and, you know, my partner will have heard me every couple 
months be like i'm changing everything (laughs) um and and part of it is it's like you're when your name is on it you're exposed you you're vulnerable to whatever might happen out there and um it it takes a lot to let go of that and to just say like well you know um it's okay you know if you put something out there and somebody just hates it with a passion because if they hate it with a passion then they they care in some ways right right right. Um, and vice versa of course some people it can make a really big impact on um but kind of leaving yourself vulnerable i think for me it's been a challenge and and in the sense that um i've certainly had band names i've played in bands i've had studio names i've changed those several times as well Mm -hmm. um from the design perspective the one of the main reasons that i keep the studio name is just so that it appears larger than it is <laughs> you know <laughs> of course um, yep and, yep. and in, in a lot of ways it, it gives me that flexibility to say like if a project comes in that's quite large uh, you know for whatever reason some some people will be like is this just you uh, or is your studio and and there's kind of like it, for me it's like does it matter if i can hire the right, the right team to do this project and right um, it just kind of has allowed more doors to be open than closed. Yeah. So yeah, I keep I mean, the but, name. but that's kind of why I was asking is because you have the studio name, mm-hmm. you have some all none, but your music right. is under your name. You know, right. you're not your album is not under the the moniker some all none. Yeah, and I was exactly. sort of curious about that. Well, you know, what's interesting is because the the approach in the music lately also has been that I do a lot of collaborating with other people, mm-hmm. and so it's become easier to. Uh, not have it be like a band name or a moniker because you, if you end up being on all of these other, um, you know, uh, releases that it becomes clear, you know, this person. And, and, and in some ways it's like, it, it follows the, the sort of structure, like the, um, of like how jazz records were made, you know, it's like they right. have the person's name on it and you have all the names on it uh, right. as the band name versus it being a singular group that may, function more um consistently together i'm curious about performing Mm -hmm. uh and sort of the nature of live performing and what you've learned about your creative practice in playing this music in front of people you know sort of you know not just thinking about this as something that's recorded and people listen to on their own but you know, the sort of communal aspect of listening and you playing this in real time, has that changed these other endeavors, whether that's teaching or design, you know, how do those all fit together? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a great question. I I know that I focus um, a lot of time into thinking about what performance is and what it Mm -hmm. means to be in front of people doing a thing. Um, And so like, as an example, um, when I do, a lecture on my practice in a, in a situation that may be either academic or more sort of like uh, traditionally graphic design, I approach that as a performance as well. So mm. the way that I set up the slides or the presentation or the um, narrative is one that I'm trying to tell a story versus, uh, right. you know, and do a performance. It really does feel like a performance in the same way, um, you know, and in performing music live, it's not just a sort of a rote memorization of like, here's what you heard on the record and here's, here it is played, but there's a lot of room for improvisation and for reaction. And so, and for surprise, um, for me, 
what's super interesting uh, and what I love is to see the, once again, the human quality of these things so that you didn't pull it off perfectly, but there are these moments where I can actually feel you in the mm. performance or hear you um, in the sense that like, even with electronic music or electronic instruments, so much of it can sort of get to a point where it's like, it's, uh, it's dialed in and it's the right. same every single time. But I, I try to use that as an instrument and say like, well, where are the moments that this can be really volatile or that I can actually, it could all come crashing down <laughs> at any moment. Right. And then you're right. watching somebody, uh, navigate that, that struggle or try to pull it back together. And that's where the magic really lives for me. So, Oh, I love that. I, I really love, um, yeah. Thinking about sound, thinking about, you know, also, uh, design that way too, where it's like when you're setting up something as an example, like a publication design or something or a, a web experience that they can have that same volatility in the sense that like, you're trying to communicate something, you're trying to express an idea, but there are some moments that like um, the interaction or the dialogue between the audience and the author can shift this and make it uh, tangible or make it real. So right. I'm, I like the idea that sometimes uh, I'm open to just being like, well, let's just see what happens. That, that doesn't always net in a, in success, but I think that that's okay too. Yeah. I mean, I did not plan for that question to basically sum up everything that we've been talking about, <laughs> but it did. It's experimentation. It's like, right. Hey, I'll go take this job. Cause when else am I going to get to try this right. and community and bringing people together and, you know, sort of thinking about collaboration. It's all, it's actually all there in live performance, which I did not realize when I asked that question. Yeah, me either. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, I think, I think we should, uh, we should just end with that since that was a nice right. summary. So I'll, I'll ask you the question that I use to end all of these. I'm curious mm -hmm. what you're reading right now. Yeah. I have, um, I, I knew you were going to ask this and I have a stack yeah. of things because I'm, I'm I love such it. a, uh, sporadic reader. Cause when I'm in school mode, I'm like reading, you know, uh, mundane yeah. texts sometimes yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. things like that. But oh, I know I get it. You know, currently my stack of uh, books, I have this great book called Teaching Graphic Design. Um, <laughs> I have one that's called The Professor is In, which I actually started to share um, some excerpts of with my students that I thought were really helpful in terms of like learning about interviews and grant opportunities and how to sort of mm do this it, it's by karen kelsky um and it's the essential guide to turning your phd into a job <laughs> nice um, nice but i've also am reading um on earth we're briefly gorgeous by ocean oh Paul. that's a great book yeah so several different but, things i'll stop there <laughs> yeah a that's a great that is a great collection jeremiah i'm a fan of you and your work and really enjoyed this conversation thanks for being on the show yeah thank you so much for having me i really appreciate the time and and the questions and the conversation is great this episode was recorded on february 3rd 2023 our theme music is by andy gordon signing we're on twitter and instagram at surface podcast you can support the show on patreon find previous episodes wherever you get your podcast at scratching the surface.fm Thanks for listening.